Well, good morning to you, and it is snowing, but you're going to get home safely, Lord willing. I'm glad you made it out today, and I know uh, God has something in store for each of us. Um, I got a whole series of things that I want to pass on to you uh, this morning, um, prayer requests and just things that I want you to be aware of. Um, let me start out with this. Be, be, continue to pray for Mark McKenzie. Mark is at home. Um, he's not here this morning, is he? He was going to try to come, and I told him very clearly that last night, I said, do not come. Because people have been sick. My family's had the flu off and on all this week. I said, Mark, you don't want to be here. And he finally, he's very, very stubborn. And so they gave in. So Mark is at home. Um, they would love to have visits or calls or anything like that because Mark likes to be with people. And he's got a, he's got a long road of recovery ahead of him. Um, be praying for him. Also be praying for Fran Stoddard. Um, Fran's not in the room, is she? I haven't seen her yet. She's down, down the hallway. Okay. So um, Fran's going to have surgery on February 16th. We need to be praying for Fran. This is surgery to deal with the, the liver cancer she has and um, the recovery that will be thereafter. The family has reported to me that, they, that the peace of God is really protecting their hearts and their minds. And that's, that's good news. But be praying for the Stoddard family and, and um, keep them when you're in your thoughts. Um, so apparently there's some kind of a football game tonight. Anybody know about that? Yeah. So uh, I think I have our youth pastor candidate. Um, here I have an article that the quarterback for the Eagles, Nick Foles, do you know this guy? So uh, I don't have it. Here's his picture. There you go. See it? So he says after he retires from his NFL career, you know what he's going to do? Student pastor. Youth pastor. I think we should call him. What do you think? I've shared that with you. Be praying for our search for a student pastor. Last week at the congregational meeting, we made a, a big decision as a church. Listen, we're stepping out by faith this year, and uh, we are right now seeking a youth pastor to come here and minister with us. Um, I get about two or three resumes a day of young men from all over the country that are desiring to serve the Lord in ministry. So pray for us as we are going through this process of seeking the Lord's man. And I need you to be praying. I was a youth pastor for 11 years. And let me tell you, when you've got somebody in youth ministry that's, that's doing an effective job, they do a great job. That's a real praise. But I've been in churches where it didn't go that way. And that's hard. We need to pray that God brings the right man to our church. And I'm, I'm trusting that you are doing just that. There are other things as well. Um, I don't know if you caught it this morning on your way to church. But on WRNR this morning, you could hear the Centerpoint broadcast. Anybody listen to that on the radio this morning? Two of us. All right. Well, on your way to church... The focus group, at least, at 9 o'clock, put on 7.40 a.m. and um, listen to the Centerpoint podcast. Our plan for that is that we'll just spread the word for what God wants to do in people's lives. So pray with us in that regard. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, thank you for the chance to be here. Thank you for your love that does defend us, Lord. We stand before you, your sons, your daughters. God, you have made us yours, and we thank you for that. Lord, now we're going to open up your word, and I pray that you would just use it and speak to our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I may not look like it when you look up here at me right now, especially if you, uh, maybe you don't interact with me a whole lot other than when I'm in pastor mode. But I come from a long line of adulterers 
and broken families and all kinds of messy things, like many of you probably do as well, right? But I want to just share a testimony of God's grace. Because today I'm going to talk about marriage. And I like to talk about marriage because it's a testimony of God's grace. See, I met my wife in first grade. You know that? Her maiden name was Mason. I'm McDonald. We're in a small town. We sat next to each other in first grade. We were learning phonics. This part isn't so awesome. I learned how to spell curse words and would write them on a paper and show her. Yeah. Not so awesome anymore, huh? We got married at 19. We were both working minimum wage jobs, college students. As I said, a line of broken families. Listen, it shouldn't have worked. It should not have worked. Our marriage should have never have survived. But I want to tell you that God's grace has brought fruit into our lives. Our marriage is not perfect. Believe me. Ask my family, okay? It's not perfect. But I just want to give you hope that marriage can still work. And I want you to know that your marriage doesn't work because you made a good choice. The only reason why I chose my wife is because I thought she was hot, quite honestly. That's it. And I think she, might, I think she liked me, so that was enough for me. I, I didn't have some list of things I was looking for. I didn't, have, I didn't you know, prayerfully make a list of the traits of the godly woman I was going to marry. I didn't do any of that, folks. And I'm not saying that's the way to go into it. I didn't know any better then. I didn't know. I may or may not have been saved. I'm not really sure. I didn't know. But God's grace worked in our lives. I want to talk today about marriage. And I want to talk about families. And particularly men, married men, I want to talk to you today. And it's going to be hard words. I'll be honest with you. The passage of scripture today stings every man in the room. That's God. I want you to abandon your feelings of failure though. I want you to let those go. Because the only grace, the only hope that we have is God. Your marriage is not going to work because you're a good guy. Because you're not a good guy. You're a rotten guy. Your marriage is going to work because God is working in you and through you. I want you to reject passivity today and understand that God's call on your life is significant. And you need to step up to the plate. Nobody else is going to do it in your home but you. You're the one, men. It's you. If you're married, you know exactly where this is supposed to play out. If you're not married yet... It's coming, maybe, Lord willing. You might decide today, I don't want to get married. (laughs) To the wives in the room, I want you to avoid the spirit of criticism today. I want you to avoid the spirit of bitterness that you will be tempted towards. Because you're married to a sinful, fallen 
man. And he has not lived what you're going to see depicted in Ephesians 5. He's been, he's been unable. But God's grace is sufficient to overcome his failures. So you watch out today for bitterness. And you watch out for a judgmental spirit. Because that will wreck your marriage as well. To those that aren't married, I want you to listen today. I want you to acknowledge the importance of your marriage decision. Whether you will be married someday or not. And who you marry is significant. And who you will be when you get married. All this is important. To everyone, married, single, male, female, I want you to be just marveled at what Christ has done. Not in your marriage. That's great. I want to, talk, I want to marvel over that. What Christ has done in your life. We're going to see it in this passage. And I want you to be aware of the lies of our culture that are attacking God, calling him misogynistic and, and saying that, we, that, that the, the Bible is against women or, or, or against freedom or against independence, all these lies. We need to see the truth. God loves men. He loves women. And he wants to work in your lives. Now let's understand what the Bible teaches, Okay. The Bible is not misogynistic. It's not a male chauvinist book. But it does describe roles. And I shared with this last week, just as review, this is a, a view of the gender roles called complementarianism. Okay? I've got this chart for you that helps you a little bit. This is a little bit of theological vocabulary lesson here. You've got egalitarian and complementarianism. Now, these, these egalitarian is a great word. It's a great word. It, it means, in, in the regular vocabulary of today, it means that people are equal. And they are. But when we delve into biblical gender roles, I am not egalitarian. Egalitarian says that there are no gender roles. That that's antiquated, archaic. That Paul and the other New Testament writers in the Old Testament were just reflecting the culture of the day. This is how the egalitarian viewpoint of gender roles, how they defend their position. And they say that men and women are equal, which I agree 100%. But an egalitarian would say there's no gender distinction. That we are fellow image bearers, and we are. We are. But the egalitarian position would say, so roles are determined by your gifting and your ability. That's how you determine who's going to be the leader in a church, in a family. By who the strongest leader is. We need to be careful here. Now, the complementarian view says, no, God had a purpose. God has a purpose. And we are equals, but there are roles in marriage. The husband has a role, the wife has a role. And there are responses in a marriage. The wife responds to her husband in a certain way, and the husband responds to his wife in a certain way. And these are, these are detailed in Scripture. I want to show you just a couple of things in Scripture before I get to my main passage today. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just a couple of things on this chart. You might write these references down and look at them later or turn to them right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
And there's an important sort of passage here that, that it's worth our time to turn to and look at. See, one of the things that people say, now hear this, this is the bottom of this chart. People will say this, well, Paul and Jesus, when they said the things that they did about gender roles, they were just reflecting the culture of the day. Anybody ever heard that before? A lot of us, yeah. Mm -hmm. That they were just reflecting the culture of the day. Now, can you just think about this for a minute? Think about what you know about Jesus. Think about what you know about Paul. Did Paul seem to have a problem where he often just fell in and just said the things that culture told him to say? Is that how Paul lived his life? Did, did, was Jesus characterized by, you know, feeling the wind and saying, oh, this is what culture wants me to do, so I'll say that? Absolutely not. Jesus was crucified because he rebelled against the culture. You realize that, right? Paul was beat in the streets, drugged through the streets, thrown to the dogs because he rebelled against the Greek culture, the Roman culture, and he rebelled against the Jewish culture. These men did not have a tendency to fall into the cultural perspective. That's not what they did. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, by now you're there. Uh, look with me at verse number 9. Now I want you to see this, and I, and I want the women to feel what this is saying as well. Understand, now this passage is talking about functioning within the church. It says this. There's a whole huge context here, but I'm just grabbing the kernel of truth in verse number 9. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, the Lord woman is the, the Lord, nevertheless, in the Lord, that is, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Do you see what God is helping us to understand? That there is a, a larger plan here. There's a strange phrase in the middle of this. Did you see it? That is why, verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Oh, that really clears it up, right? Yeah, because of the angels. Oh, now it's all crystal clear. Let me help you with that. Who observed the fall of man? Who saw the fall of man? Who saw Eve take the fruit from the tree? After being deceived by Satan, she ate of it and then gave to her husband who was with her. Who saw that? I'll tell you who saw it. Angels saw it. Angels saw it. It was an angel who was deceiving. All of the universe was watching. And now we have this Strange phrase that God says, I have this authority thing going on in the church because of the angels. Let me take a stab at what's going on here. God is trying to say this. Hey, angels. Hey, universe. Hey, all of everything that there is. My creation messed up. Look at them. 
Adam was supposed to lead and he dropped the ball. But you watch what I do. It's God saying, you watch what I do. I'm going to take that man who fell, who was sinning, who, who didn't protect, who didn't provide, who didn't prioritize his wife, let her go into passivity. He fell. I'm going to take him and I'm going to reach the world and I'm going to use it with, I'm going to use men to do it. You might wonder why, ladies, you might wonder why, why does God use men to lead in the church? Let me tell you what people have said in the past, and I categorically disagree with this statement. Every people say, well, you know, because men are much more emotional, or I'm sorry, women are much more emotional than men. Really? Come to my house when we watch a movie. See who's crying, okay? Watch. And I know other men, you've told me the same thing, so don't you guys laugh at me. Right? People tell me, they'll say, well, you know, men are much more logical in their thinking. Really? Come to my house, okay, when my kids say, hey, Dad, can I uh, go buy this? And I'm like, Nancy, help me. I'm going to say yes. My kids all know I'm the pushover, right? I'm the pushover. I'm the one. Nancy's like, nope, we can't afford that. Sorry, no candy bar for you. We, we have we brought up lies, folks, that are not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible does it say a man leads because he's a better leader. Nowhere in the Bible does it say a man leads because he's smarter. Nowhere in the Bible does it say a man leads because he's more organized, because he's a better. It doesn't say that. You know what it says? Because of the angels. Oh, that clears it up. But it does say this. God uses the weak things of the world. Sorry, men. God uses the weak things of the world. The church, the biblical church, the church that follows the Bible has been around for 2,000 years. And it's led by men. Find something else you can say that about. You can't. You can't. God uses people, broken as they are, as a testimony of his glory. And guys, God wants to use you to lead in your family. He does. Now, how is he going to do that? Well, Going to go here, okay? So this is the plan. This is roles and responsibilities. You'll notice when we get through Ephesians chapter 5, it doesn't say, and the woman is the submitter. Or the wife is the submitter. There is no is after wife. Ephesians 5 doesn't tell us the role of the wife. The role of the wife is helper, lover. This comes from Genesis chapter 2 and Titus chapter 2. And this is not a derogatory term. This is not a negative term. There's only one other person called helper in all of your Bible. There's only one other person called helper, and it's God. That's it. He's the only other person that's called helper. So, ladies, you have great company. You and God are the only ones that are called this word. You are a helper. Remember I told you last week? Some theologians, translate a better translation of this word than helper would be lifesaver. Lifesaver. When, that, when, when the lifeguard swims out into the ocean 
and gets me as I'm drowning out there and flailing and pulls me in? Do I say, you weak little helper? Do I say that? No. If not for the lifeguard, I would have drowned. This is the role that God has for you as a wife in your home. Now, your response to his leading is to submit. And I know that's hard. I know that's hard. For some, it's harder than others. I realize that. We talked about that last week. Today, we're going to talk about men. Ephesians chapter 5. See, the thing about Ephesians chapter 5 is everybody gives all the press to verse number 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Listen, folks, that is a parenthesis in this passage. Honestly, it truly is. You could take verse number 22 out, and it wouldn't change the meaning of much of this passage at all. You could white out verse number 22, and very little changes in this passage. It's not about wives. This passage is almost exclusively about husbands. Ladies, married women in the room, you have a response in this, but it's mostly about a man who God desires to use in your home. Let's read it. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now there's a lot of information here, and I've got way too much sermon to preach, but we're gonna we're gonna go through as much as we can. At times we'll go quick, so stay with me. First of all, we're going to see the role of the husband, verse number 23. Notice it says, for the husband is the head of the wife. Just as review, the wife's role is not described in verse number 22. It doesn't say, and the wife is the submitter. Rather, her response is given. But the man's role is not only labeled and identified, but it will be described in detail. Now, this word head, people kind of like to bat this thing around. Uh, Egalitarian theologians like to take this word head and, and, and play with it, okay? This word means one of two things. It either means the leader, like the line leader, okay? Like the, the, the person that's up front, or it can mean a source, like the head of a river, okay? The source of it. And you might wonder, well, which is meant here? But don't worry. You're going to see very clearly what God intends for this word to mean. And it's very important for us to understand what head means. Go with me again back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We were there once. Go back there again. 1 Corinthians 11. See, this is a passage about roles. 
So that's why I've turned here now three times in the last two weeks, including today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, this passage in Ephesians 5 says that the husband is the head of his wife. And there are some women and some men who believe this is some kind of a derogatory term. Like, who is it that he, why is he the head? Why is he the, what makes him so special? You're misunderstanding what headship means. Look at me at verse number 3 of chapter 11. Look what it says. But the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now that last phrase is very significant. It tells us something about this idea of headship. Do you understand the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Within the Trinity we have the three equal persons of God. There is submission in the Trinity, but there is not competition in the Trinity. You understand that? Jesus, when he is on earth, he submits himself to the will of the Father. Not because he's less than the Father, not because he's little God, you know, some kind of mini-God or something. He is co-equal with the Father. If you start drifting into that you've got, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and little brother Holy Spirit, you are now into heresy. You are no longer in Christianity at that point. The three persons of the Trinity are co-equal. There is submission in the Trinity, but there's not competition. It's not rivalry. It's not who's in charge. Business people, I understand, use terms like, Leader among equals. That's how our elder team operates at Center Point Bible Church. I'm the senior or lead pastor. But we have seven pastors and we are all equal. We, there is a leader among equals. I'm not, listen, some of those guys are faster than me. Some of those guys are smarter than me. Some of those guys have a lot of things that I wish that I had. But you know what? I'm in the role. I'm in that role. That's what headship means. It's not competition. It's not better. It's not I can beat you in arm wrestling so I'm in charge. It's role that God has given. Well, let's understand this role even more, okay? Let's go to Luke chapter 22 and understand what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. Go to Luke chapter 22 with me. Very important. We, we have to go throughout the Bible here because so many people have attacked us over our understanding of gender roles. So in Luke chapter 22, we are now going to see what a leader is like. What God's kind of leader is like. Luke chapter 22 is a great story that Jesus told. We're going to just basically look real quick at the end of it, okay? But there's this whole issue that, that Jesus goes through in Luke chapter 22. And he says, I'll just read verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles, you with me? Luke chapter 22. Ah, let's just get the whole thing. Go to verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. There you got it. Who's in charge? Who's the head? And so Jesus then says this. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in them those, those over them are called benefactors. Now, what's that mean? That means when you have a Lord, 
We don't have lords. Think boss. When you have a boss, the boss is the benefactor. He gets the benefit of the relationship. In the world, in the Gentile godless world, the boss gets the benefit. You serve me because I'm the boss. Right? Is that not how it works? Is that not how your boss operates? That's the world. But Jesus is going to teach us about leadership, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Men, you are to be the leader in your home. But Jesus described what leadership looks like, and it looks like service. It doesn't look like being the benefactor. It doesn't look like, hey, iced tea, iced tea. That's not it. Now, I know that's how leave it the beaver and, you know, my three sons and father knows best. And I know that's how it was depicted when we were kids on black and white TV. And maybe that's how your dad did it. That's how it was in my house. You sat down and watched football and the women went to work, man. And they're bringing you iced tea and they're bringing you food and dessert and all this. And you just sit there, right? That's not leadership. That's not leadership, man. That's not servant leadership. No. Our role is to be a servant leader. Let me go back to Ephesians chapter 5 because we got to get to the good part. The model. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Are you there yet? That's verse number 23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the, wife, is the, head of the church. And I find it interesting. When the world hears that, and maybe when you hear it, you heard this. The husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church. But let me tell you how a believer hears it. Men, you need to be stung by this. The husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church. And you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. The world sees husband is the head. Believers, we see and we feel even as Christ. Men, do you feel the difference? Remember what that love meant for Jesus? We're going to see it. Now, the husband response, if we continue on in verse number 25, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. We're going to talk more about this at the end. Emerson Egrich wrote, he's famous for writing Love and Respect and talks a lot about how men, they desire respect. They desire to be valued. And women often, they desire to be loved. And he pulls that out of this passage. But what we need to see here is that we are called husbands to love our wives. And let's keep going here because look at the model. As Christ. As Christ. And a passage goes on here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Now that is sacrifice. I've heard Pastor Billy say many, many times, and I really appreciate this, Billy. It's one of your best phrases. That in marriage, the husband is the authority. But the wife is the priority. Hmm. See, men, wrestle with that. Wrestle with it. That's balance. That's biblical. That's spirit-led. And the model is Christ. I want to say a word about the couple of phrases here that come next. It says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now, there's an important skill when studying the Bible that you need to know about. Okay? And that skill is the ability to look at the passage and do something called defining your pronouns. Okay? Now, stay with me. We'll get back out of language arts class soon. All right? But there's a very important pronoun that we must define in verse number 26. When I say define the pronoun, what we're trying to do is identify who is he. Who is he? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Men, you are called to lead. You are called to be the servant leader in your home. You are called to reject passivity and to love your wife and to make her the priority as you live out authority. But men, you can't sanctify. That's not you. That's Christ. That's Jesus. See what Paul here is doing? He is, he is teaching us, he's here teaching us that man and woman, husband and wife, come to God the same way. My wife doesn't come, you know, under my shoulder. She doesn't come through my side to God. She comes to God the same way I do, through Jesus. I can't sanctify my wife. I can't sanctify myself, folks. It is Jesus that sanctifies. I can't wash her with the water of the word. I don't have any idea how to do that. It is Jesus that does that. See, people have taken this passage and they've taken complementarianism too far. They've taken it too far. And they've given me, the the husband, the role of Jesus in the life of my wife. I can't do that. And ladies, you can't expect me to. You can't look at your husband and say, well, sanctify me. Wash me with the water of the word. Present me holy. Come on now, without spot or wrinkle, you better get on it. What are you waiting on? Wrong. Only Jesus does this. What we're being given is an example of the sacrifice that Jesus played and the reason why he did it. He did it out of love. We're being, it's the, the model of love is being shown to us. This is how we are to live, men, that we point them to Jesus. We point them to Jesus. We don't point them to me. We don't point them to myself. I point them to him. He's the one that sanctifies. He's the one that washes. Now look what all it says here that Jesus does for the church. He presents the church to himself. 
You know, I love that. Here's why I love it today. I love it for a lot of reasons. I love it today. God wants your marriage. Jesus wants your marriage to reflect God so he can take your marriage and present it to himself. Isn't that awesome? God wants to bring you, you and your spouse, as sinful as you are, as messed up as you are, as as much as you've hurt one another and damaged one another over the years, and he wants to trumpet you up front and say, look at my glory. Remember what he was? Remember how he picked her? And look what I did. Look what I did. Look at her. Do you remember her past? Do you remember what she did? Do you remember all that she did? Oh, she was a wretched person. But look now and present us as his bride in splendor. And it goes on. Without spot or wrinkle, that means to be forgiven. Forgiven completely. Or any such thing. That she, the church... Now, this is not center point Bible church. This isn't a building like that. This is believers that she might be holy, sanctified, set apart. Hebrews 12 says that without holiness, you cannot see God. Ephesians 1 says that we've been declared holy. This is what, God, this is what Christ has done for his bride. Now, this is agape Love. For sake of time, I need to skip that next thing. The video, out. Got it? Okay, good. All right. Verse number 28. There it is, okay? Just another time. We had the word agape, okay? I was going to teach a little bit about agape, okay? But I don't have time for that. So now we'll go on to the next one. Can you catch me, Jacob? Go ahead. Let's see it. He's got a tough job back there. You know that? You got to go to the next PowerPoint. Hurting good jokes? There it is. Okay. All right. So, verse number 28 says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, I was going to share with you the definition of agape, and I still will. This is agape love. See, there's four words. I got to share this with you. Four words for love in your Bible. Okay? There's sterno which actually isn't in your Bible, only the opposite of it is osterno, and it means natural love. That's the love that you have for your dog, okay? You naturally love him. He's cute. Oh, isn't he cute? I like him. Sterno love. Eros love. That's romantic love. That's, ooh, she's hot, right? That's eros, okay? Then you have phileo love. That's friendship. That's we get along, man. We're buds. We golf together. We fish together. We crochet together, whatever, okay? But we, we have things in common, And then we have agape love. Just a little fact, by the way. Ladies, nowhere in the Bible does it say that you are to agape your husband. But it does say you're to phileo love him. Think about that. It means friendship. Titus 2. Wives, you are to phileo friendship love your husband. He wants you by his shoulder. He wants to take walks with you. He wants you to go fishing. He wants you to sit up by the woodpile while he splits wood. He wants you to be his friend. Okay? 
But men, you're called to agape. Agape love, modeled by Christ, is not based on a feeling, rather is determined act of the will. A joyful resolve to put the welfare of others above our own. It's to sacrifice, folks. It's to sacrifice. It's to lay down a life. It's Jesus at the cross. That's the greatest example. And in this passage, quickly we'll see three ways you can live this out. First of all, love your wife as your own body. You know what this is? You prioritize her. She is the priority. As your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. We are to prioritize husbands. You're to prioritize your wife as your own body. Now, I care a lot for my body. Let me tell you, I get a little splinter in my finger, and I'm like all day like, Nancy, look at this thing. It hurts so much, right? I mean, that's just how we are. I prioritize myself all the time. Husbands, you are to prioritize her, your wife. Not her, your neighbor. Not her, your friend. Her, your wife. She's priority. But it goes on. I want to spend some time on these two words. It says, for no one ever hated his flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. Now, these two words are beautiful. And they are best depicted by a mother bird. And you men are supposed to live it. See how out of your character this is? See how this is out of your nature? This is not your nature. That's the thing. That's the beauty of this. You can't do this without God's spirit. I mean, come on. How much are you like a mother bird? Right? I see you guys. I mean, you are rough looking. I don't want you taking care of me when I got a splinter. Stay away from me, right? But God uses two words that are best depicted with a mother bird in her nest. Nourish. You know what that means? It means to feed. Paul said in 1 in Thessalonians chapter 2, he said this. I'm sorry, no. I got that one wrong. I'll come back there in just a minute. So nourish means to feed like a mother bird, okay, who eats the worm. Don't want to gross you out, but, you know, you have the picture, right? This is the husband's agape love for his wife. He's to know what she needs. He's to figure out what she needs and then to give it. To give it. Live with your, life, with your wife in an understanding manner, Paul, or Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 7. You figure her out. You must become, men, you have to become a student of your wife. You have to become a student of her. What is her love language? What is she like in the morning? What time does she need to go to bed? Okay? Not that you're putting her to bed, ladies, I'm not saying that. But you are, you are trying to serve her, Okay? You know what she needs, and then you sacrifice to provide it. That's what you do. You know, when Nancy and I first got married, I was a late, I'd stay up till like 1230 at night. I mean, I just love to stay up, watch the Tonight Show, and, you know, just, just kick out in front of the TV and just relax. And Nancy was like 4 o'clock in the morning. Bing, she'd wake up. And I'd get all whiny. I was young and stupid. I'm like, why don't you stay up with me? I don't want you to go to bed so early. Stay up with me. And she did. She outdid me. To one day, God's grace said, Hey, McDonald, you idiot. Prioritize your wife. Provide. So now, this late riser, 
I wake up. I, I don't even want to tell you what time it is, but I will. Just as a testimony of God's grace. This ain't me. But 4.30, she wants to get up. 4.30. I, I could give you 15 examples of dropping the ball. But this is where we must provide. We're providing for our wife. And we know what they need, men. And we give it like a mother bird. Now my first Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says this. This is my other one. So we've got prioritizing, providing, this is protecting. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse number 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. You got the picture in your mind? Nursing mother taking care of her own children. Men, you're supposed to do that with your wife. That's what this passage says. That's what that word there, cherish, means. It means to provide and to protect. The, the, it's, it's, the, it's the eagle building the nest and, and making this comfortable place for their young. That's what this word cherish means. Nourish means to give food. Cherish means to prize, to protect. Your translation may say provide and protect because that's what it means. So man, that's what God is calling us to. Prioritizing, providing, protecting. And the picture of this involves a cross. Not a not a business executive. Not a lazy ba- lazy boy chair and a remote control. That's not it. It's a cross. Repeatedly. I mean, over and over and over through this passage. When Paul was speaking to couples, he says, you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look. It's Jesus. That's our picture. I ask you, when Jesus went to the cross for you, how willing were you to receive him? How worthy were you? How much had had you been meeting his needs? Right? I've heard men say that. Well, she just doesn't meet my needs. Really? Do you want to apply that logic? To Jesus? I think not. Now to end, I want to I share just a reminder to the husbands in the room. This, this next verse is only for the husbands. Ladies, you can go ahead and go. Okay? Here's what it says. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing on to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now let me just say this. This is not saying that a woman is less. I believe that he's speaking in a, into a culture that did use power to push women down. This, word, this weaker vessel means physical strength. You give honor to her. In other words, Peter's saying, I don't care if you're bigger than her. It don't matter. You give honor to her. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now you better listen. Because we've got to hear this last phrase. 
What if I told you there's something you can do that God will no longer hear your prayer? What if I told you there's something you men can do? Wives, you can't do this. Not this one. But you men can do one simple thing and God promises he will not answer your prayer. And there it is. Live with her in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. Thanks, Chris, for that great challenge to pray. Men, be a student of your wife. Prioritize her. Provide, protect. In the power of God's spirit, look to Jesus and be a testimony of his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace that that is new this morning. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our harshness, for our anger, for our hard words, for our attitudes. Forgive us, Lord. And bring your grace back into our homes. And help us to love even when, even when the other doesn't seem like they want it. Help us to love. We'll give you the praise and glory for it because only because of what you did at the cross that any of this is even possible. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.